this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 50th episode of Working with the Word, and thank you for joining us as we continue to work through the Gospel of John together. Today, we're reading an account in Jesus' life that can be easily overlooked. The major event in John chapter 4 is Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, and the Samaritans coming out because of that. 42 verses in that chapter devoted to that. But the rest of the chapter can kind of become eclipsed by that, and so today, We're reading the short account, and let's remember that it is so important to the development of John's gospel and our own application to faith in Jesus Christ. So let's get started. Here's John chapter 4, verse 43 through verse 54. After two days, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they also had gone to the festival. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, since he was about to die. Jesus told him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him, saying that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, Your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. Okay, so what are your first observations? I see another interaction with the individual and while there are maybe more people around as he's here in Cana of Galilee again and it seems like he at one point addresses a group of people you have in chapter 3 Jesus and Nicodemus this Jewish Pharisee you have in chapter 4 the beginning part or that first section with the Samaritan woman and here you have this royal official some people think this to believe maybe like a Roman centurion uh, someone who would have been a Gentile someone who is maybe an enemy of the Jews for the way they would view it as being the Romans over, or as the Romans are being over them in this time. But this seems to really emphasize what we read in John chapter 3 and verse 16, that very well-known and very important verse. God loved the whole world. He loved the Jews. He loved the Samaritans. He loved even the Romans and the Gentiles. And we see that as God in the flesh interacts with these people, and helps these people to come and to grow in their faith. So what about you, Emerson? The first thing that I notice is that there are a couple of pingbacks to Jesus's first miracle. In verse 46, John actually reminds us of that. 
that Jesus has come to Cana of Galilee, that should ring a bell in our minds because we've read that recently where Jesus, this was the same place that he had turned the water into wine. And then at, in verse 54, after this sign is performed, this was the second sign Jesus performed. And so John is, is kind of making a connection in our minds to the, the, the first sign and maybe wanting us to remind ourselves of refresh our memory about what happened there. And I think he's wanting us to see a connection between the two, but I think he's also wanting us to have the response, the proper response to both the first sign and the second sign mm-hmm. of faith. And that's one of the common things we see between these two signs. After Jesus turned the water to wine, his disciples believed in him. And after Jesus healed this man's son, the father believed in him. And so just the connections between those two signs and the purpose of those signs is the thing that I notice. Yeah. So we have this short section and just these 11, 12 verses or so, and we want to begin just looking at these first three verses, this transition from Samaria back into Galilee, which even, remember, goes back farther into what he was doing in chapter 2 there at the end, being there in Jerusalem, I think for Passover, right? Isn't that why they were there? So they're there for the Passover festival, and then he's working his way back up to his home region of Galilee. And when he comes there, it says the Galileans welcome him because they were glad to see the things that Jesus did in Jerusalem. They're thinking, hey, there's Jesus. He's that guy who did all that weird stuff in the temple down in Jerusalem, and now he's back home, and we want to you know, see more about Jesus, hear more about Jesus, get to know Jesus a bit better. Although there's this interesting, again, in the Christian Standard Bible, it's a literal parenthetical statement. You know, I don't know if Jesus said this out loud at this moment, but here it talks about the fact that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And so while it says that the Galileans welcome him, wonder if this attitude is really maintained, if this is really kind of just what we do with that. There's a similar idea in the synoptics. Some people think that that's a different approach to that, but there's definitely something else that's going on here as far as how this will be played out. Will they always have this well wishes and well good feelings to him? No, we're not seeing any of that, are we? Yeah, and in chapter 7 of John, Jesus's brothers don't even believe in him. They they say to him, if you want a following, then you need to go where the people are and you need to openly proclaim yourself, make yourself known. And in chapter 7 and verse 5, it says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. And so even the people that were closest to him, who knew his character, who saw his works close up, even they didn't believe in him. And I've wondered before if, you know, what the connection is here in John, Jesus goes to Galilee because he testifies a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. It almost seems to me like where in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus uses that as a reason to leave, for instance, Nazareth. I'm, I'm leaving because I don't have any honor here. Here in John, it seems like Jesus uses this as a reason to go to Galilee because he knows he's going to have no honor there. Maybe he wants to develop faith in them, or maybe he's just kind of signifying he didn't come to be received and welcomed by the world. He came to ultimately be rejected by the world. There's a couple different things, ways of looking at that. But it is just kind of a, it's it's almost counterintuitive, right? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus goes there because he knows he has no honor. And like yeah. you mentioned, they they welcome him. And that's a good thing. 
But that's going to take us into the story in verse 48 when Jesus kind of rebukes their faith. Not so much rebukes, that's not the right word, but he, he challenges their faith. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Yeah, so let's set up that that situation in Cana where Jesus is again in Cana. Like you mentioned, there's this pingback, or as you know, one guy talks about a hyperlink, kind of using a more information age reference to, okay, we've just recently read Cana of Galilee, something happening there when Jesus turned the water to wine. So we should immediately be thinking Cana is something, you know, as a special place. And particularly the fact that he brought up the sign before maybe something's going to happen again. So here is this Roman official, or here is it just talks about a certain royal official there in verse 46, comes to Jesus. And why he chooses Jesus, it doesn't really say much. He must have had some type of idea in that Jesus can do something for him. You know, was did Jesus have like posters on telephone poles of like, need a miracle, call Jesus? Or, you know, I don't know exactly how all these people knew stuff, how his mother knew back in chapter two that Jesus could help with the wine situation. But this man comes and he's desperate. He's pleading with Jesus to help to help with his son. But what else do we know about this guy? We know that he's, you know, from a, a, a Roman court. I I'm transitioning because I'm starting to step into your territory of some things that we had in our notes here. But what else do we see about him? He comes pleading to Jesus. Where is he from in in relation to Cana? Yeah, so it tells us that he heard that Jesus had come down from Judea into Galilee, or come from Judea into Galilee. And so, like you mentioned, he had heard about Jesus. Perhaps he, it seems like he had some measure of faith, the Mm -hmm. fact that he took the initiative to go to Jesus because his son is dead. So Capernaum and Cana are about 20 miles apart. And so, I mean, this isn't, you know, for us to travel 20 miles, you just hop on the interstate, at least in our area, and you're there in, you know, 20 minutes, depending on traffic, Right. maybe 30 minutes if it's rush hour or something. But for them, this would have been a significant journey. I mean, not traveling the world, but it's a significant journey. And so I think you see in him like you said, a desperation, there is a need, there is some faith there. And you you see that in him, in his willingness to make this journey. And then he, he shows up and he's pleading with Jesus. His son is sick and maybe about to die any moment. And Jesus looks at him, but he addresses apparently a group of people. And he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. You know, again, Jesus saying things that seem weird or strange, but as you were talking about, maybe it's because he knows that the, the faith and the belief that these people have in him right now just isn't what it needs to be. Maybe it's similar to some things we've seen in chapter 2, or maybe with some things we've seen in chapter 3, where people are seeing the signs, and that's that's really all they're trusting is, is they're focusing on the signs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus is not just addressing the Father here. It's not like he's refusing to do the miracle or just not compassionate or he's not sympathetic to the Father's plea. The Christian Standard Bible highlights that he's talking to the group when he says, unless you people see signs and wonders. And I I kind of think of this in comparison with Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus, because when Nicodemus first comes to Jesus, Nicodemus admits hey, you must be a teacher because no one can do these signs unless God were with him. And Jesus pushes him to to accept Jesus not just as a teacher 
who can do great signs, but as the Son of Man, who has come directly from heaven, the very Son of God, who has to be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness and die for all who will come to him who will respond and obey. And Jesus is kind of doing the same thing with this, this father in particular and for the crowds in general. You know, don't just see me as a great miracle worker, but see me as the son of God. Jesus's signs are intended to convey not just power. Obviously, they do convey his power, but Jesus wants them to see his person, that he is the son of God. We see that again in, in chapter 6 when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the same group comes back the next day wanting more food. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So it's, it's just like a sign. A sign is just that. It just points you in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jesus is emphasizing here. If I can do this sign, what are you going to do in response to that? What is that going to tell you about me? And I think that's what Jesus is kind of putting this man in a position where he's going to have to decide whether he's going to believe in him. And that really takes us to Jesus' answer to him. So in verse 50, Jesus told him, go, your son will live. What's that about? That's not what the father asked him to do. He said, come with me. And so what's Jesus doing here? Yeah, again, we want to highlight the the father's persistence. You know, after that statement in verse 48, the father says, sir, come down before my boy dies. I mean, he's just really emphasizing the seriousness. You can probably hear based on the words like pleading and the situation, this man's maybe getting choked up, maybe weary and tiresome from, you know, agonizing over his, I don't know how long his son's been sick, but I kind of have it in my mind that maybe it's been a while and he's been trying to help him and take care of him. And here he's traveled this distance. He's probably traveled fast and hard, as quick as he could to get to Jesus. Maybe he's got this group of people with them, and he's expecting Jesus to ride back with them, and they're going to you know, breakneck speed the whole way to get Jesus there in time to heal his boy. And then Jesus just says, all right, go ahead. Yeah. And that guy, I, I kind of think like that, where there's maybe some pause. We're not really given any response from him. Jesus says, go, your son will live. But verse 50 does say, the man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. I mean, he doesn't fight. He doesn't question. He doesn't reject or say, no, I I need you to actually come with me. He says, all right, I'll go home. And that's the amazing thing. It's very unexpected for Jesus to just say, go ahead and go. I mean, we could talk to a doctor 20 miles away and say, hey, this is what's going on. And they'll say, oh, yeah, this is a cold, you know put in a Walmart to go pick up for some some Dayquil or NyQuil, take that for a few days and you should be feeling better. But I mean, that's not what he's looking, he can't do something like that and see his son on a Zoom call. What he's doing here is very obviously miraculous. And again, while John doesn't use that word, he's talking about that sign in this. And so the man starts his journey home and you can just imagine what's going through his mind. I mean, mm-hmm. he's probably still working his way back fast, but just, is this really true? And on the way, his servants come and say, hey, your son's alive. And he asks, well, how, how is that possible? I mean, he's he's about to die. As far as he knows, when he left, he could be expecting to come back to a dead son. And now he's coming back to a son who's alive. And they said he got better at this moment. 
And it's like, that's the exact moment that Jesus said, your boy will live. Jesus didn't have to, you know, sometimes when I read, I'll snap my fingers or something. It's almost like it's a magic trick. or It's not magic, though. I want to emphasize mm-hmm. that. Jesus is not doing magic here. He doesn't have to worry about doing hand motions or things like that or saying the right abracadabra phrase. Jesus just speaks. And over this distance, over this disease, Jesus shows power and gives life to this boy. He says this, and 20 miles away, the boy immediately starts to get better and starts to show that he is alive. It's showing Jesus' power to give life to people. And while this isn't his second miracle, this does wrap up in verse 54 with the second sign that Jesus performed. Remember in chapter 2, verse 23, it talks about he did signs there, and that's why the people in Jerusalem were so excited about Jesus. They believed in him because they were seeing him not just turning over tables and driving out people with whips, but he was also doing other signs. John doesn't give us specific records of those signs, just like he mentions at the end of his gospel. There are lots of other signs, but he's picked out some of these. But this is something that, you know, it shows Jesus' power over disease and distance. It shows his deity. It shows the power of just his word and speaking. It emphasizes this man's faith. Is there anything else you want to say about what we see going on with this sign, Emerson? Yeah, nothing really to add to that. I mean, what Jesus does here is unprecedented. In, in the text highlights the word live three times. And so Jesus has the power of life. And that's what John wants us to see. Even from chapter one, when John introduces Jesus as the word, in him was life. And so if he can give life to this boy over 20 miles distance, unexpectedly, then then he can certainly give spiritual life. I think that's really what we need to see here is Jesus's power over life. Yeah. And something we've talked about with the previous sign, I'm trying to remember to use that word since that's the word John uses, in chapter two, that was a fairly small group. It's Jesus Mm -hmm. and the servants are pretty much the only ones who know, and always his disciples come to find out because it talks about how they believe in him there in chapter two. But we're going to notice that some of these signs get more and more public. You're going to have this sign where it leads to a man and his household. I mean, Jesus addresses a group of people there in Cana, but unless those people went to Capernaum as well, they won't know that this man's son was healed until that news starts to spread, which it surely will, because mm-hmm. people are obviously talking about Jesus and what this Jesus guy is doing. And a lot of people are just seeing it as, wow, look at this miracle worker. Look at this prophet of God. But while Jesus is a prophet, while he is a miracle worker, he's so much more than that. And that's what he's really trying to get people to see. And so as we get to things like the next chapter, Jesus heals this man who's lame. But as news of that gets out, it starts to bring more and more tension. In chapter 6, when he feeds people, thousands of people, with just a small amount of food, and then he comes and calls them to a stronger level of discipleship, it drives people away from him rather than to him. We're seeing the signs get maybe more and more public and are causing more and more tensions and problems as we're getting closer and closer to Jesus's time, to Jesus's hour that he often talks about, where it's time for me to really be full-blown out in the open. So that way people will know what I'm claiming, will know what I'm doing, and that people will reject me, and that people will see that I am the Son of God. They may reject me because of that, but that's exactly what has to happen in order for the world to find salvation from their sins. So we're going to see more of 
John's recording these signs, again, ultimately so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, like it talks about in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. But I think that kind of covers the majority of like the interpretation and observation stuff we wanted to cover for today. What are some application things, or what's the so what we can take away from these verses today? I love this story, and right now as we're talking about it, it's my favorite in the Gospel of John, <laughs> because the so what is you see the development of this man's faith, kind of what we've seen already in some of the stories, how the develop, you see the development of people's faith as they come to follow Jesus, but you see three levels of faith in, in this father. You first of all see him desperate and dependent on seeing signs. And sometimes that's where our faith is. We may say, God, if you do this, then I'll believe. And not recommending that all the time, obviously, that's not always a good starting place. But it was for this father. He needed Jesus to heal his son. And so he trusted that Jesus could do that. That's why he came in the first place. But when Jesus puts him in a position where he has to go, you know, away from Jesus and trust that Jesus will actually heal him, he kind of moves to the second level where he is forced to take Jesus at his word. And sometimes that may be our place as well, where we say, okay, this makes no sense to me, but because you say this, I'm going to do it. And that, that's a good place to be. I mean, what he does right here is he is taking his belief in Jesus, and it's being challenged trying to go to another level. But then, after the, he meets the servants, it says in, in verse 53, so he himself believed along with, with his whole household. And that's maybe, maybe the highest level of faith that we see in this story. He has devoted himself to following Jesus because he knows that Jesus is who he is, and he knows that Jesus is faithful. And, you know, when it comes to that kind of faith, it says, I've seen your goodness, God, and I'm going to follow you wherever. No matter what happens, his, his faith is no longer dependent upon seeing a sign. He has seen enough to know that Jesus is who he is. And so not only does he himself believe, but he leads his whole family to believe. And so I, I think one of the questions we, we think about is, well, where would I be in those three tiers? Where would my faith be? And there's a lot of things we could say to unpack that, but, you know, w where do I fall in that? Where is my faith? How does it compare to the Father's? Yeah, and that's why our challenge this week kind of targets into that middle stage, this idea of looking to take Jesus at his word. And probably there are a lot of us who there are things that happen in life and we're at that, I don't really know, I understand how that helps me at the moment. You know, I think about, personally for me, something like Matthew 28 and verse 20. I am with you always to the end of the age. There are maybe times in life we feel maybe like an Elijah moment, or maybe somewhat of a Job moment, and very stressful and difficult times. Maybe things we've been pleading with God about for a long time, just as the Father comes pleading to Jesus, that... I don't know if I really feel that you're with me. I don't know if I really trust that. What are the areas of your life right now that you need to take Jesus at your word at take Jesus at his word? Now that's more of an examination. That's not really maybe a we want you to to write that in or anything like that. But we do want to consider that question this week. An understanding of okay, if I learn to take Jesus at his word, 
with this statement, how is that helping me grow in my faith, ultimately getting closer to that third stage of, God, wherever you go, I know that you are with me. I know that you are true and that you are good. Thank you for listening to Working with the Word today. Next week, we'll pause our inductive series on John to take a look at a suggestion for one of our Difficult Passages episodes. JD wrote in to ask about 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 through verse 13. He says, I've always heard that to be applied to the context of canonization, but that seems so outside of the context. So what we'll be doing is taking our best shot at seeing what's going on in these six verses and looking to help JD, and as Emerson and I have talked about that, looking to maybe grow in an understanding ourselves of, we're not saying that's not an appropriate point, or that's not what that text is saying, but is that what's really going on in the context? So if you'd like to join us in studying that passage, we encourage you to already go ahead and start looking at 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through chapter 14, as that's going to help us see some of that context right around those few verses that we want to look at in that program. Until that time, if you've been enjoying the program, you can help us out a lot by rating and reviewing the show and sharing it with some of your friends, whether it be through social media or just talking about the show. This has been helpful for you. As always, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working With The Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.